0: AAA Sky. Today we're talking to Tony Hoffman, AAA member and eclipse chaser. I'm Kat Troach.
1: And I'm Stanley Triple AAA Sky is produced by the Amateur Astronomers Association of New York, whose mission is to promote the study of astronomy and to emphasize its cultural and inspirational value. Find out more about the AAA at AAA.org.
0: For everyone who is waiting to hear our interview with Yui Hasegawa, we're going to delay that interview to next month's episode. Today, we get to hear Tony Hoffman speaking about comets, eclipses, and other celestial targets he has pursued the world over. First, here's a word from our president, Brian Burke.
2: Hello, and welcome to AAA Sky, the official podcast of the Amateur Astronomers Association of New York. I am Brian Berg, the president. Thank you, as always, for joining us in another edition of our podcast. Before we get into that, very quickly, make sure to go to AAA.org to check out everything that we have to offer, and as the weather is warming in New York, we are all over the place throughout the five boroughs of New York observing. Make sure to check our calendar, come out and join us, and of course, come to our classes and attend our last lecture of the lecture series, which is coming up in the next couple of weeks, and all the other things that we offer. Again, you can find them all at AAA.org. And in this week's episode, Cat interviews Tony Hoffman, one of our most experienced members at AAA. Tony is an expert eclipse chaser, exoplanet hunter, comet hunter. And with at least one comet named after him, how many of you can say that? His activity is a perfect example of citizen science. Contrary to popular belief, you do not have to have a PhD to do serious scientific work, as there is a myriad of citizen science projects that are available, some of which Kat and Stan mention in this podcast. And they cover not only astronomy, but the full range of scientific research. You too can get involved in one of them, or many of them, and make a real contribution to the scientific community just as Tony does. All you need is the drive and desire, and you'll be able to find a project that suits you. I promise you that because there are so many of these citizen science projects out there, it's really a fantastic way for everyone to get involved in astronomy, science, facts, and the community thereof. In fact, from a certain point of view, citizen science is exactly what the AAA does every day, and Tony is a prime example of that. With that said, Kat, take it away.
0: Huffman has been an amateur astronomer since his mid-teens and a member of the AAA since 1985. Observing interests include both solar system and deep sky objects, as you'll learn today. He has been involved in multiple citizen science projects and, in that context, has participated in the discovery of comets, asteroids, and exoplanets. He is also a ham radio enthusiast, astrophotographer, and a senior hardware analyst for PC Magazine. Thank you, Tony Hoffman, for coming on to the podcast, The Man, The Myth, The Legend. Sure, my pleasure. So, I did have a few questions for you, um, just from an amateur astronomer standpoint. Um, You've been with us, with the Amateur Astronomers Association since 1985, is that right?
3: Yes, uh, John Marshall was president back then, I think it was like his last year, and yes, I joined in I came to New York after college in 1980 and I joined the club in 85. I've been doing some of my own, just observing with binoculars from various points in the city before that.
0: That's fantastic. So you have a great tenure with us and I think if anybody needed anything about club history, um, the person to talk to would definitely be you. But what I was definitely most interested in, of course, was your role in citizen science being an amateur astronomer. When uh, folks think about astronomers, of course, they think about, you know, people that have gone to college for a number of years and have master's degrees and, you know, PhDs. But you can participate in science just being an old-fashioned, regular, average, run-of-the-mill person like you and me, who isn't necessarily, you know, trained professionally, you know, so to speak, in this yes. industry. And how did you get inst- Like, how did you get started in citizen science?
3: Well, I'd always had an interest in comets. My, the first comet I'd observed was uh, KahuTech. The infamous Kahutek, which actually wasn't that bad of a comet, uh, uh, it was just overhyped. And uh, for uh, years after that, uh, and even up to today, actually, I've tried to observe every comet that uh, that uh, comes within uh, binoculars, or in some cases telescope range, or even better, naked eye, and. Uh, Back in uh, 2001, I heard that amateurs had been finding sun grazing comets uh, in uh, images from SOHO, the Solar Solar and Heliospheric Observatory, which basically have a coronagraph that blocks the the light of the sun so you can see uh, what's in the vicinity of the sun, whether it's coronal mass ejections from the sun itself, or planets moving through the field of view, even the the bright asteroids uh, can show up in that as well, and comets, not only known comets, but uh, it, it soon became apparent that there were many unknown, most of them were small, are small, Uh, fragments of uh, what they call sun-grazing comets. Uh, And they're related to some of the brightest comets ever seen. Basically, they're fragments of it, although they are very much on their last legs when uh, these particular ones enter into Soho because they, uh, uh, they vaporize before they reach perihelion and uh, you never see them emerge from behind the disk that's uh, blocking the sun.
0: Right. I remember back in, I believe it was 2013, we were supposed to have the comet Pan-Stars that was supposed to yes. be this Big, gorgeous, you know, comet of the century, and it just fell apart as it came closer to the sun, which was pretty disappointing. I will not lie, but I feel like we made up for it years later with NeoWise because NeoWise was just brilliant.
3: Yes, yes.
0: So, just uh, to touch base again on some of these objects. Can you name just some of the objects off the top of your head that you have discovered yourself or have helped teams discover?
3: Well, the first comet that I uh, found in Soho Images was in uh, February of 2002. And it uh, was given a preliminary designation of Soho 390 because it was the 390th. Uh, comet found in Soho images, and after that it was given a a, uh, name by the Minor Planet Center and uh, the uh, International Astronomical Union, and it is uh, granted the comet C2002C4 Soho. The Soho comets are name for the spacecraft rather than the person who discovers them because the spacecraft is uh, the source of the data. No, I, I'm okay with that actually, because I understand that the the people who hunt for these, particularly with their own equipment and spend the countless nights in uh, scanning the skies really, uh, Fully deserve to have their names uh, associated with the comet. Well, uh, for me, I'm happy, I've been happy just to find them. uh, And uh, apparently, they're no longer uh, confirming a lot of them uh, the Minor Planet Center, and uh, uh, there's been staff reductions, I hear, and uh, there's a backlog, and I don't know if they're ever going to uh be go back to that uh except for unusual ones, I think they still are uh uh confirming and giving a full designation.
0: Well, that's a bummer to hear um I would hope that maybe the staffing issues you know are resolved in the future, but I'm going to call this comment unofficially the Hoffman comment. I don't care what anyone says okay. <laughs> thank you. So, so now my next question for you, um, were there any objects that you discovered that we can spot from New York City, such as an asteroid or anything of that nature?
3: Uh, the one asteroid I found, this is in a different citizen science program by the Space Watch, which is a Kit Peaks uh, survey of near-earth and potentially hazardous asteroids and uh, and basically they uploaded a lot of data and uh, at nights as soon as it came in and people would look at three successive frames of data looking for uh, things that move particularly they would look like a streak uh, usually a fairly short, uh, streak which could be a nearby object in motion so they would it would blink through these three images and see if indeed uh it was moving um and uh i did find uh one uh it was designated two thousand five j b twenty two and I'm listed as the co-discoverer of that, along with uh, Jim Scotty, who's a, a uh, an astronomer at Kitt Peak. And the trouble is, in order for it to receive a name, it has to be obs- observed at four different apparitions. <laughs> so it has to orbit the sun four different times. And this... As a, as a small object that only becomes bright when it's in the vicinity of Earth. There are no good apparitions for, like, several decades. So uh, I don't know if it will ever get named in my lifetime, but I, I was happy to discover it. And I I also have an asteroid named after me. One hundred twelve thousand nine hundred tony Hoffman
0: very cool it was
3: discovered by uh thank you Rob Maxson who was a is a Soho or was a Soho comet hunter as well, and he found it in images from uh neat the near earth uh, asteroid uh survey it's officially named by the international Astronomical Union, so it's a Main Belt asteroid, about somewhere around a mile in diameter. That's somewhere out there, and it has my name on it. It's I don't know if it's been observed since the first time, but it it can get as bright, brighter than 20th magnitude. I'm not sure. Uh, but it's not observable from here. Unfortunately, none of the things that i found would be observable easily. And uh, if I may jump ahead to exoplanets,
0: exoplanets. I mean, come on, you—you're a jack of all trades here.
3: Yes, actually, uh, since 2010, uh, there have been several citizen science uh, programs involved in uh, examining data, first from the Kepler exoplanet hunting observatory, and now from TESS. And basically, they've all been on the same theme. They, uh, they take a series of images showing a large number of stars, and they keep taking the images over a uh, fairly short period of time. Then they create light curves for the individual stars, and that is basically shows the fluctuation in the star's brightness over time. And all of these uh, exoplanet hunting projects have been uh, looking for planets uh, by the transit method, which basically is that if a planet happens to to be orbiting, basically edge onto our line of sight, and passes in front of the star, uh, even though the planet is tiny compared with the star, the uh, Kepler and TESS uh, telescopes are sensitive enough that they can uh, detect a drop of brightness in brightness, which basically persists as long as the planet is passing in front of the star. And then when it leaves the, the star's vicinity, the brightness returns to normal. And these are Projects in which a number of people, volunteers, look at the same data and they look for potential transits. There are other things that can uh, mimic transits, anything from star spots to eclipsing binary stars to uh, artifacts. If a solar system object, an asteroid passes through the field of view, uh, it can uh, mess up the light curve in a way that mimics a transit. So, a number of observers are looking at the same data, 20 different people, and they mark any transits, potential transits that they see. And then they go on to another light curve. So, uh, one can go through a number of light curves in, the, in one uh, session.
0: So, given your experience with um, exoplanet hunting and analyzing this data, how excited are you for James Webb? I mean, it's going to be spectacular.
3: It is awesome. Just the the amount of detail in terms of being able to uh, figure out the components of the uh, atmospheres of exoplanets it is pretty fantastic.
0: One thing I'm really excited about for James Webb is some of the, not just exoplanet data, but some of this first light, this infrared light knowing that James Webb is sensitive enough to pick up these details is incredible to me. And just from, again, from an amateur standpoint, I can't wait for some of this data to be released I wish I knew exactly what the first images were going to be that we're supposed to see in July, but hopefully it'll be an exoplanet and hopefully we'll have a citizen science aspect to that where we can have folks involved like you who have experience with this that can kind of jump right in and analyze the data.
3: That that would be fantastic.
0: So what's exciting, of course, we are going to have all this new information with James Webb not just exoplanets which we have crossed the threshold of 5000 plus discovered which is fantastic but we'll also have you know ways of examining stars and even our own solar system because James Webb will be able to look out past mars and beyond which will be fantastic. But I did want to pivot because you mentioned how hard it can be in New York City with the light pollution. And everyone knows there's so much light pollution here. It can be challenging to observe at night but one of the problems we also have, and this is nothing to do with the light pollution per se, but one of the problems we have is, you know, we're not always the prime time location for eclipses. And I know that you are an avid eclipse chaser. Can you talk a little bit about that and, you know, your methods and your processes behind chasing down these events?
3: Oh, sure. Uh, First, I would say that, the, f- the first uh, solar eclipse that I ever uh, viewed was in 1970, March 7th, 1970. There was a total solar eclipse that crossed parts of the eastern seaboard, although it, in New York City it was about 96% total. Um, I, I went with my father to Central Park. Uh, And viewed it from there using a pinhole camera and taking occasional glances at it, even though uh, they didn't. And then I was afraid that maybe I would go blind or something. But uh, uh, fortunately, uh, my eyes are still reasonably good. And... uh, but I, I saw various partial eclipses over the next uh, next few decades, but it wasn't until 2009 uh, that I went to uh, see a total eclipse. It was in China. It was the longest eclipse of the 21st century, Lasting uh, where I was, it would have been about five minutes, 56 seconds, although it it was more than six minutes at its best. I did see parts of the partial uh, phases, but the total eclipse was uh, clouded out. Oh, no. And then it started raining thunderstorms.
0: and, oh my goodness! Uh, and it
3: was acid rain, so my eyes started burning.
0: Oh my so gosh!
3: It was a uh, an inauspicious beginning to my real eclipse chasing.
0: Right, so, memorable for all of the wrong reasons.
3: Yes. So then I uh, there's a short solar eclipse that crosses equatorial Africa in 2013. It's what they call a hybrid eclipse. It was total for most of its length, and then it turned into uh, an annular eclipse. So uh, there was would be a ring of sunlight around it. But I got in touch with him, uh, Travel Quest International. That's a well-known eclipse chasing. Uh, outfits. And I spoke to their president and I asked him a lot of questions about uh, the prospects of actually seeing totality and what their records were. And uh, it seemed good to me. And even though the eclipse would have been very short in Kenya, I decided to go there with them. And we went to Lake Turkana in Kenya and half of our group split off and went to Uganda. We flew up to Lake Turkana, which is the largest saltwater lake in Africa, I think, and we were staying in a guest house. The weather prospects seemed very good, except after the initial. Partial phase began where the the moon took a little nibble out of the sun and then uh, continued like a Pac-Man to <laughs> <see it>. uh, <laughs> We noticed there was some some clouds coming in from the north, and it, it turned out there was a, a dust storm coming out of Ethiopia. And uh, we were about a hundred miles south of the Ethiopian border. And at first there was rain, and then there was sand. Uh, fortunately, I was able to get my gear in ti- inside in time. It blew through and then at some point, it was still cloudy. But we had flown in and we uh, arranged with the pilot that we would try to find a clear spot in the air. And so we sped to the airport in a a van that the Kenya Wildlife Services had uh, provided us, and we were up in the air as soon as we could. And then we, uh, uh, finally, about 20 seconds before totality began for this very short-duration eclipse, we broke into the clear. But I spent the time that i should have been just visually looking at the eclipse fiddling with my camera which was on autofocus but it just wouldn't focus and oh, i saw no. in the uh, in the uh, viewfinder it looks like there was a little bit of light around it uh so i didn't actually see the eclipse with my eyes i did see it sort of in the uh in the camera's viewfinder but it was very disappointing Other people did see it and photographed it on our flight. But we were one of the few uh, people in that part of Kenya to be able to see it because uh, uh, ground-based observers were clouded out. And so it was a magnificent trip, but it was bittersweet and very disappointing in terms of uh, the eclipse itself. But I decided that I would book again. And this time I would go to the high Arctic, the Norwegian archipelago of uh, Svalbard, to Spitsbergen Island.
0: Now that is, sorry, not to cut you off. Um, now that is the eclipse that I remember you for, because yeah. I, by that point, I knew you. And you came home afterwards, you know, triumphant with two of our other members from Triple uh, A, uh, Stan Honda, and Eileen.
3: Eileen Thornton-Randa.
0: Yes. And yes. And the three of you, you, you crushed it up there. It was amazing, the photos you guys came back with.
3: Yeah, the weather was absolutely perfect. And, and during this clear, very clear and very cold Arctic morning, as I said, we're about 800 miles from the North Pole there. We're in a uh, an icy valley with these like gla- these uh, ice covered hills to either side, and it just uh, our luck held out. The a couple of nights before, we weren't sure if the weather would be good, but we got a a, a good the weather uh, held up, and it was just magnificent to be able to uh, to see it and and to photograph it. Now, speaking of
0: photographing, you you mentioned the first eclipse that you, you imaged was with a pinhole imager. Is that correct? Yes. Now, of course, you've since, you know, graduated to many different types of equipment. What would you say is your go-to method now?
3: I use a, um, several cameras. I have a, my Sony Alpha 7R, which is a... Uh, a mirrorless uh, camera, and I use that with a uh, a lens that uh, with a focal length of up to 300 millimeters, so I can get fairly close in photos of the sun and its vicinity. I also have a uh, Sony RX100. And I've used cameras in this line to shoot uh, several eclipses, including the one in uh, Argentina in 2019. So this gets a wider field view. I use this for wide field. And then actually the iPhone takes some decent photos. Uh, I had some very wide field iPhone shots of the uh, eclipse in, uh, in Argentina that came out pretty well.
0: If anybody knows me, I am a huge fan of what I like to call astro and I love yes. personally using my iPhone for different events, and I've yet to be able to f- use it for a total eclipse, um, but I hope to do that in 2024 with our next, uh, our next uh, total solar eclipse.
3: Yes, yes, me too.
0: But we also do have an annular happening in 2023 in October. So yes. are you going to travel for that one, or are you just going to save it for the total
3: no, I'm sure I will travel for that. There's a lot of good. There's like it crosses like 13 national parks, if I remember right. And uh, no, I would definitely go there. I was at the actually in 2012. I did see my first annular eclipse from the uh, the south rim of the Grand Canyon with the.
0: That must have been um, incredible.
3: Yes, I was with a very close friend who I'd known since the age of 5 and his family and we drove up there and uh, the weather was uh was perfect and uh I got some good uh, photographs of that and uh and then in that 2017 I was in Nebraska for the uh so-called Great American eclipse the weather wasn't perfect, but we did get we're able to see the Corona and I did get some somewhat fuzzy shots as well as an iPhone video of it. I, That's I, awesome. I, I decided I wanted to do something really Midwestern. So I, I uh, there was a windmill uh, that I positioned below the sun and for photos and uh, so that was that was good. It wasn't weather wasn't perfect, but it was uh, uh, it was good to meet up with some friends out there, too.
0: That's fantastic. Now, just before we wrap this up, there's a question we ask all of our guests. What is your favorite place in New York City?
3: My favorite place f- just, in, just general? in
0: general, in general.
3: I would have to say Central Park. It's a great place to if I'm if I'm in the anywhere near it. I uh, I'll usually take some time to go into the park and just walk around or re- and relax. And then the, some of my favorite museums are there. The Metropolitan upon. Uh, The uh, lower 80s on the east side and then on the west side, uh, of course, the American Museum of Natural History.
0: Solid answers. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Tony, thank you so much. For everybody who's listening, you can find Tony Hoffman on Twitter. You can also find him on Flickr. And you'll be able to view a good chunk of his photos there. And of course, out with us at observing event, Tony, again, thank you so, so much.
1: Well, I'd like to come back to Tony's description of finding exoplanets by uh, what is the transit method which basically works as a planet passes in between its star and us, if the alignment of the three bodies is okay. In doing so, the planet blocks a tiny bit of the light from the star, and we can measure that tiny bit of light that's blocked. So as it turns out, in the very first episode of AAA Sky last year, we talked to Dr. John Michael Brewer, who first developed what became the Planet Hunters website, which is planethunters, in one word, .org. I'm saying that because if you want to participate in this citizen science project and maybe find an exoplanet yourself, you can do so at planethunters.org. It's easy, it's a lot of fun, and at the same time, it's serious science.
0: And another organization that I absolutely love for citizen science is the AAVSO. They do citizen science where you are looking for variable stars. And this is something that you can even do from New York City. If everybody recalls when Beetlejuice had that dimming episode where it went from 11th brightest in the night sky to 27th brightest in the night sky and everyone thought to themselves, oh my goodness, is this the time it's going to finally explode? No, it it wasn't. But... This was scientific, citizen scientific data that you were able to do yourself and measurements you were able to do yourself right from the five boroughs and submit to this scientific organization so that they can calculate the measurements and ultimately figure out what was causing Betelgeuse to dim. So this is something you can do at home.
1: Um, so Tony's an example to all of us. So I also loved his story about shooting an eclipse in Kenya from a plane. <laughs> And he gave some very good advice to fellow eclipse chasers, because when totality occurs, it's only for a few minutes at best. And especially if it's your first eclipse, well, as he pointed out, don't forget to look at the eclipse, obviously with suitable eye protection, but don't spend the whole time of totality fiddling with your camera equipment or you'll miss it. and. It's such an incredible experience to see it with your own eyes. Um, That's precisely why people chase eclipses.
0: And you'll have good opportunities, October, 2023 and April, 2024. The annular solar eclipse will be October, 2023 and the total solar eclipse won't be as big as it was last time cross country, but it'll still be a total solar eclipse, April 8th, 2024. Personally, I'm going to roll the dice and I'm going to go to Buffalo, New York. I know it'll be cold, but I'm hoping that I'll have clear skies, at least for totality.
1: And now it's time for the AAA Sky Listener Challenge where we ask you an astronomy question and we award a prize to the winner selected at random from among all the correct answers.
0: In the last episode for our listener challenge, we asked you what was the currently proposed NASA budget to the nearest billion. Obviously, that has to get approved by Congress and may change, but there is a White House proposed number. How did our listeners do, Stan?
1: Well, the currently proposed budget for NASA is $26 billion. That may sound like a lot, but it's actually a fraction of 1% of the federal budget. But in any case, we do have a winner who is Michael Urena. Congratulations, Michael. We'll be contacting you to get your preferred size for your AAA Sky hoodie and your mailing address.
0: Congratulations, Michael. So, Stan, what's our listener challenge for today?
1: Today's question is... Every 10 years, NASA engages a committee of scientists who develop a list of programs called the Decadal Survey, which they collectively recommend NASA should focus on. The new Decadal Survey has just come out. What is the number one priority they recommend NASA should do over the next 10 years?
0: You can enter by sending your answer in an email to listenerchallenge at aaa.org. Be sure to get your entry in by the deadline of midnight, May 10th for a chance to win a hoodie.
1: If you're not a member, stop by aaa.org to hear more about the AAA and how you can become part of it. Use the code sky 22 in one word to get a 15% discount on your first year membership fees.
0: And if you want to contact us at AAA Sky, you can email us at AAA Sky at AAA.org. That's AAA Sky at AAA.org. Keep your comments coming.
1: That's our show. Tune in next month to hear our interview with local high school student Yui Hasegawa. Who tells us about how, based on a simple idea she had, she went on to create the New York Public Library's first telescope loaner program, together with the AAA.
0: AAA Sky audio editing and original music is by Preston Staley. Our technical producer is Parker Bossier.